0: Welcome to Beyond the Buzz, S&P Global Ratings Sustainable Finance Podcast, where we dive into hot topics across the sustainability landscape. Hello, and welcome to Beyond the Buzz. I'm your host Karina Vandersky, and the topic of today's podcast is physical risks of climate change and how resilient countries are to the economic consequences. In the last decade alone, storms, wildfires, and floods have caused around 0.3% of GDP losses each year, according to Swiss Re data. And we know that these types of events are not only increasing in their frequency, but also in their severity. Some countries may be better able to weather the storm, while others may be swamped by them. No pun intended. So the question really is, how vulnerable are countries to these climate hazards? And how prepared are they to manage the financial and social impact? Today, I'm joined by Dr. Paul Munday, S&P Global Ratings Climate Adaptation and Resilience Specialist, and Marian Amio, S&P Global Ratings Head of Climate Economics, to talk about a commentary they've recently released, entitled Weather Warning, Assessing Countries' Vulnerability to Economic Losses from Physical Climate Risks. The commentary is a real piece of forward-looking thought leadership, which explores and analyzes the vulnerability and readiness of 135 countries over the next 30 years to physical climate risks. Hi, Paul. Hi, Marion. Welcome to the pod. Hey, Karina. Hi, Karina. So why don't we get started by just doing a little level set, which is what I always like to do. Why is this important? How do physical climate risks impact countries?
1: That's a, probably a, a really good starting point. Um, so I, I think it's worth saying, look, um, you know, countries uh, globally um, and in particular regions, of course, have you know, experienced the impacts of um, acute weather events, extreme weather events, you know, flooding, storms, heat waves, etc. For, for some time. But the, the data is showing us that, that those those types of instances, you know, in, in terms of their frequency, but also their severity um, are also increasing. Um, at the same time so um, it's fair to say over the last 20 years or or, or more that those impacts have have got worse and um, you know against that against that backdrop you know we've only got to look back over the last a you know, few years where we've seen severe flooding in, 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 in Europe and parts of and Germany and, and, and Belgium, um, but also um, records being broken in, in the US around drought and, uh, and also around rainfall as well. Uh, there's been a bit of a bit of everything everywhere. Um, so I think the importance of this topic is growing ever more. And over time, the climate projections also suggest that um, we can expect more of these types of events um, as well. So, so things may get worse you know, without adaptation to, to some of these risks.
2: And I would add as well that um, so while we know that those risks um, are increasingly becoming more frequent over time, um, it is important to make them tangible. So we always talk about climate change, but at the end of the day, if you think of the, the economic impact, it's not something we have a good grasp of. So it's important to study those risks and and try to understand what it means for the economy so that we can also prepare and understand what kind of impacts countries may face in the future?
0: Absolutely. Certainly, whenever we talk about climate change, we know that the future is going to look much different from the past. But if the past is any indication, we're already experiencing these types of events around the world. So how, how do these physical climate risks impact countries?
1: So um, in a number of different ways, actually, um, through various channels. So um, I think some of the most uh, kind of obvious impacts are through the kind of um, scenes that we see um, in the newspapers and, uh, you know, online um, through, you know, damaging events like storms, flooding, uh, wildfires we've we've seen being quite prevalent um, in the last few years as well. Damaging stock, uh, damaging assets, um, affecting, um, you know, capital flows as well. You know, you have an asset that goes offline. that that can cause you a a quite significant problem but also at the same time alongside those those kind of damages there are the costs associated with rebuilding after the fact and for for different hazards that can be um that can be appreciably more expensive um you know clearing up after a severe flood event or after a hurricane um can can consume quite a lot of resources and that can ultimately divert financing um away from from other projects um which can can hit economies in, in in various different ways um so uh, that's the from the, the kind of Asset perspective, I guess, um, but there's also a social um, impact as well, um, not not least to um, uh, impacting, you know, potentially where where people choose to live um, and, and altering those kind of migration flows in a sense. Um, but also um, after the fact, that the, there's a there's an impact upon you know people's well-being and also how they, they they tend to kind of recover from these events as well, more more generally. So they can they can manifest in in, in different ways through different channels.
2: Yeah, so I I think what Paul highlights are kind of the main channels that uh, we're likely to see at work when those risks occur. Uh, But then there is still quite a big open question in, in the economic literature today, with regards to those risks. So that question is really, are those risks likely to have a permanent impact on growth going forward? Uh, Or is this going to be more like a temporary effect that will impact countries just for the the, the time of the shock and and maybe just a few uh, periods afterwards? So yeah, what the literature tells us is that um, it depends probably on on the the capacity of countries to adapt to those shocks. Um, So often you will find that for more developed advanced economies, it's easier to rebound from these kind of of shocks because they have quite a lot of capacity to do so financially. But also their institutions are often uh, more stable and and help companies or, or people relocate across countries. Whereas for countries which are less developed and have less uh, financial resources to rebuild um, and reallocate their resources across the the country, they often suffer from more permanent shocks uh, with regards to physical risk of climate change. So that's also something we looked at in our study, um, thinking about the readiness of countries to adapt to those risks is actually quite a key part of the picture.
0: So why don't we drill in a little bit to the analysis itself? And maybe you can give us a little bit more clarity on the approach that you've taken. Obviously, this is a very dynamic space. uh, And there are things that you look at at a global level versus a regional or country level. And I understand you used slightly different approaches depending on what we're looking at. So can you give us a, a Brief overview of the approach that you took when analyzing the vulnerability and readiness of the 135 countries that you looked at.
1: Yeah, sure. So you're right. This is um, it's quite a large paper, and the uh, the approach um, we would we would say that it's quite uh, simplistic, um, and I'm sure others may, may 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 agree or disagree. But but we really it starts at the um, the starting point is an assessment of of where stuff is. So whether that's kind of cropland, um, GDP um, distribution, but also population um, as well. So we want to find out where those different, um, uh, those different types of capital um, are located spatially across the globe. And then what we do with those data sets is effectively kind of overlay them um, with um, hazard maps. So we've got, when I talk about hazards, I'm talking about flooding heat waves, uh, wildfires, etc. And what we what we do with those hazard maps is we say look there are going to be some areas that are likely to be um, more exposed than others so we set a bunch of thresholds um, and we then overlay those thresholds, those areas of kind of high exposure to each of those different hazards um, and we overlay those with um, the areas of cropland distribution. Um, GDP distribution, and also population distribution as well. And that really tells us where those those kind of most um, impacted areas are likely to be.
0: So just to drill into your approach for vulnerability, Paul, you mentioned that there are three dimensions that you looked at. The first is cropland distribution. The second was GDP distribution. and The third was population. Why did you select those indicators in your analysis?
2: So maybe I can answer this one. Um, so the reason why we selected those three indicators is really to map them to the right uh, risk. So if you think of, of heat waves, for example, they tend to affect population. So the, the labor or yeah, people generally speaking uh, more than, than anything else um, in the country. So that's why we map uh, the heat wave risk to the population. Then where did we pick cropland? It's to related to the water stress risk. So again, when you have droughts, the part of the economy which is more affected is, is usually agriculture. So that's why we map them together. Um, and then for the other risks, which are like uh, floods, sea level rise, uh, storms, wildfires, it's less clear to say which which part of the, the economy is affected. So that's why we map it to GDP um, overall. So I guess that's that's how we pick those three components.
0: Okay, thank you for providing that context. That's helpful from the vulnerability perspective. So then how do you translate all of that into economic losses?
2: yes so once we've identified the exposure of countries to to climate risk and and especially where the the economy or the population will face those risks um we try to put a, a sort of impact on it so what what does that really mean in terms of loss for for the economy around the world so we come up with this measure of regional GDP at risk, which does that. So, taking literature estimates on how um, how much wealth is usually destroyed when when things like heat waves happen, or storms, or, or things like wildfires. So, all the risk we look at, um, we can assess. I mean, it's it's of course just a. An, based on historical data. And we know there's a lot of uncertainty around all of this assessment. But we get an idea of what are the types of losses that uh, countries are likely to see uh, when, when those risks will occur in in, in, um, in our different climate projections. Um, so that's kind of thinking about the, the loss part of, of the equation. Uh, but then, as we talked about before, there's also the component of readiness. Um, so how do we assess this? And I think I, I lo- alluded to it. Um, earlier but basically what we look at is um, what is the economic profile of country um, and what is their institutional profile so we assess that if the the institutions are more stable and if the economic uh, development is higher, uh, then countries are likely to be more ready to adapt and face those risks. Um, So all all in all, if we look at all all these three measures, so the the one that Paul described, which is more the exposure um, geographically to those risks, uh, then the the estimates of uh, potential losses, which are the regional GDP at risk, um, and then the readiness measure, we can get quite a holistic picture of the, the outlook of those risks out to 2050.
0: Fascinating. All right. So what were the key findings then? What, what did you find about countries around the world in terms of their vulnerabilities and their readiness to adapt to physical climate risk, both shocks as well as the, the longer term effects?
1: So um, I think it's worth saying that we, we we effectively kind of split the paper into two parts. It's really two, two, two papers in one in that sense. So the, the first part of the paper looks at the kind of global regional level and, and, and aggregates losses at, 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 at within kind of global regions. And then the second part Part of the paper focuses upon um, individual countries and looks at kind of GDP exposure as well as, as well as readiness to, to adapt um, as well. And that's really the second component is really to help us think about what specific physical risks, flooding, heat waves, etc., um, may, may may be kind of impacting different countries, uh, and at the same time, what is their you know, ability to kind of cope with and deal with some of these different different challenges. So the findings in the context of the first part of the paper, so this kind of global level analysis, we, we found that. Um, physical climate risks, those that we've studied, could expose about 4% or so of, of world GDP to losses by, by 2050, so over the next 30 years. And that's under uh, a kind of a current policy scenario. So representative concentration pathway uh, 4.5, RCP 4.5, which for those of you that are familiar with RCPs, um, you can you can switch off for the moment. But um, effectively, that, that's kind of aligning to about up to about 2.6 degrees um, or so of warming by by the end of the century. So, so just yeah, to, go, just go to ahead.
0: jump in really quickly, th- that assumes that the existing set of policies around climate mitigation go forward, but it doesn't assume aggressive action. It's sort of like a business as usual going forward. That would be the it's a 4% GDP loss. Is that correct?
1: So, so yeah, so you're right about the um, uh, about the RCP. It's um, it's assuming that countries will will do what they say they're going to do. Um, it, you know, arguably they haven't always done that. So that you could be a pessimist and say that maybe um, the situation might be different. What the IPCC has, has kind of come out and said, you know, after COP 26 at the end of last year was that we're, we're aligning, you know, close to RCP 4.5. Um, for, for the end of the century. Um, but but you know, of course, that could fall somewhere between RCP four point five, you know, a temperature increase of two plus degrees and, and, and somewhere you know much, much, um, much higher than that. But suffice to say, about four percent of world GDP um by 2050 under that scenario, up to about four and a half percent under what is effectively a no-mitigation scenario, so RCP eight point five. That being said, if, if if we get our house in order and we uh, align our emissions to the to the Paris Agreement, um, our analysis shows that we could expect about three point three percent of of world GDP to, to be lost by twenty fifty on that basis. I do Marion. Do you want to do want to add to that? You're the economist here.
2: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean. I think those are kind of the, the high-level results, um, and maybe to, to give a bit of context here, if, if you think of 4% of GDP at risk, you might say, oh, okay, I mean, that's not that much. But actually, if you think back of, to 2020, when we were hit by the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw world GDP drop by 3.4%, so... We're talking about a bigger loss here in, in terms of uh, what physical risk could cost the global economy by 2050. I mean, something we probably need to highlight as well is that the, the way we compute those risks is uh, is abstracting for a few things. So um, we, we didn't really take into account how countries will adapt to those risks. And, and I guess it's fair to say that they will, to some extent, manage to, to cope with some of those. Um, and also we look at the economy in quite a static uh, view, so we, we don't really project how it might uh, relocate over time across the country and so on. So there are all of these things we don't really model, but I think it's still a sizable, uh number if, if you think that 4% of our GDP will be at risk of, of uh physical hazards by 2050. I think another striking finding from our study is also the disparity of of the shock across the world. So if you look um, from a geographical perspective, you will find that uh, South Asia has much more exposure to those risks than Europe, which has the least exposure. So for South Asia, we're talking about um, GDP at risk of around 15%. um, And for Europe, we're just around 0.8% of GDP. So you, you can see the sheer scale of the challenge is very different um, if you're based in Europe or if you're based in South Asia. So it's it's quite uh, clear that also from our study, the, the countries which are usually less developed, um, they, they are actually more exposed to those risks. So we found that um, Lower and lower middle income countries are around 3.6 times more exposed to those risks than the, the higher upper middle income peers. So that's quite a, a big disparity here as well. Um, so what 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 we say as a result of these findings is also that there is definitely some international support needed to help those countries that are the most vulnerable um, and have actually contributed little to the um, climate change problem today so um, there there are some some really striking figures I think that, that we find here.
1: I was going to say Marion there's a you know there is a, an unfortunate irony here isn't there that you know we find that it's those countries really that have contributed less to this climate crisis um and it's those that ultimately we we expect to be kind of most most impacted and, and at the same time have you know less less means generally speaking less means to be able to cope with those challenges um as well
0: That is that is striking and certainly something that plays into the debates around adaptation and appreciate you uh, Marion Good. highlighting the fact that there are certainly limitations and uncertainties whenever you're doing a, a forward-looking analysis like this one. But the disparities is, is pretty striking. I mean, you talk about Europe versus South Asia. It's a pretty significant difference. And is it really just driven by both the, the vulnerability piece of it or the, the readiness piece of it? Or, or is it just a combination of both that drives those disparities?
1: I would say in, in Europe, we certainly see um, fewer of these types of um, physical risks um, occurring um, comparatively to other regions. And that's kind of what's driving, that's what's driving that that kind of um, that, that figure. Um, at the same time, though, also bear in mind that, you know, we're focusing upon a mid-century time point here, 2050. So over the next 30 years, and that's really not not yet picking up on the uh, some of the impacts from chronic events like sea level rise, you know, changing patterns of, of precipitation and temperature as well which um, in parts of in parts of Europe particularly uh, with many coastlines etc um, that could be quite impactful so, and, and more so over time as well if we were to extend the analysis to the end of the century um, I dare say that we would we would kind of see a much stronger signal from those those kind of chronic type type risks and, and maybe see um, some some disparity in terms of the findings um, on that basis as well perhaps Europe may be maybe more impacted on in in, in that situation.
0: Certainly more, more research to be done on this topic as we build in the, the nuances and dynamics in our global economic and climactic systems. So just finally, how does this research contribute to the debate around countries' vulnerability to the physical impacts of climate
1: change? good question. So I think it's fair to say that there's been quite a lot of research, uh, recent research, I should say, in in this space, looking at how countries um, may be be impacted in their exposure to these types of risks. Um, You know, our our paper is is somewhat different in the sense that it it arguably goes into a bit more depth. Um, It it also kind of features this readiness component, which I would say is probably somewhat kind of different to what we've seen elsewhere. You know, it's all well and good looking at um, exposure, and it's important to look at exposure, but we also need to factor and Of course, countries' um, ability to try and cope with and adapt to some of these um, some of these challenges. So it's it's contributing to the literature in that sense. Um, we also uh, we also see um, that those kind of economic losses um, can be unevenly distributed, and the analysis really kind of picks up on where those pinch points may may be. Um, but at the same time, it also kind of makes the point, and, and hopefully resonates with many of the listeners here that um, you know action is needed. We we, we can't just rely on mitigation to, to try and solve this problem. Um, I, remember, I remember one time hearing a, a phrase that, that, that mitigation is the best form of adaptation. You know, ultimately the literature is telling us that um, it's gonna be cheaper, um, and people are gonna be less impacted if we, if we tackle this problem much sooner. And I think, you know, given the results that we see here, we see fewer impacts, less impacts under some of the, the kind of lower warming pathways, um, that the research really kind of speaks to those findings um, as well. Marion, do you want to do you want to add to that as well with your kind of economic hat on?
2: Yeah, I think um, what what our scenario analysis really does is highlights where those risks are going to occur, um, and I think also the the way that we quantify those risks or what what kind of losses they are might like, uh, they are likely to bring to the economy is a is a bit. Um, yeah, I guess a, a new approach in a way, and and I think it it tells us a little bit more what those risks are likely to cost. I think, um, I, I mean, as as Paul was saying, I mean, we we talk a lot about transition today um, and think about how to get there, what it might cost, if it's feasible or not. But we are less able to think about what all the actually the actual cost of the earth getting hotter. So um, I think what what our paper does well is give an idea of the scale of of the challenge. Um, And that's, I think, a a good contribution to the literature, even if we know the estimates are very imperfect or or with a lot of uncertainty around it, it it still gives us an idea of of what it means. Um, so, So I think that's a good contribution from our paper.
1: Absolutely. And and, and Marion, as well, remember that, that, you know, we find about 4% of, of world GDP um, could be could be at risk of losses by 2050. But that's also within the same ballpark of some other studies as well, including the NG, NGFS, so the Network for Greening the Financial System.
0: Well, thank you both for joining me here today. Clearly, we've only scratched the surface of what is a very thorough and Detailed approach to assessing countries' vulnerability and readiness to physical climate risks and doing it on a forward looking basis. I encourage our listeners to check out the commentary. Uh, It's publicly available on our website at www.spglobal.com and it's called Weather Warning Assessing Countries' Vulnerability to Economic Losses from Physical Climate Risks. And we'll make sure to link it in the show notes here. So thanks again for joining us. I'm sure we will invite you back to talk more about future research that you put out. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Beyond the Buzz. Check us out next time. To subscribe to Beyond the Buzz or to view our analyst research, go to spglobal.com forward slash ratings. Thanks for listening and tune in for our next episode.